Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible study tonight. It's great to see you. We're picking up where you left off last week, at chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts 15. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have tonight to open the pages of your written word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's our spiritual food. And so we pray that you would feed us tonight. We love you. We thank you for this precious book that's not just any other book, but because it is the testimony of Jesus, it's living, it's active, it's it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the weapon of our warfare that tears down strongholds and lofty ideas raised against the knowledge of God. It is absolute truth. And so lead and guide us into truth tonight, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, of course, we're studying this book because we want to relive it. I do believe we are reliving it to some degree, and I trust that we'll continue to relive it in greater measure as we continue to study it and know more about it. We want to see Jesus everywhere we look in the Bible and uh, in the book of Acts. We see where the gospel of Jesus is going. In the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we saw where in the world Jesus was. Uh, but in the book of Acts, we see where in the world the gospel of Jesus is going, and it's going all over the world. And tonight we're going to, uh, to read a number of things, and one of the things we're going to read about is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, his second church-planting mission. And so we're seeing the gospel go all over the place. The disciples have devoted themselves to keeping the great commandment and fulfilling the great commission. They're going into all the world preaching the gospel. And of course, I'm so glad they did because it reached us. That gospel of Jesus reached us and, and we are saved and we're children of God. And uh, that's exciting to me. Acts chapter 15 describes an important church council that was held in the city of Jerusalem around A.D. 50. So again, 50 years after the death and resurrection, or sorry, no, 50 years after the birth of Christ, thereabouts. And uh, now we're at about 20 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. AD 50. So just before Paul's second missionary journey, the chapter discusses the issue of whether Gentile converts to Christianity should follow the Jewish customs, such as circumcision and dietary laws, in order to be saved. And you can read all about that, too, in the book of Galatians. That's one of the main things that Paul addresses in his letter to the Galatians these Judaizers that came in and, and tricked them into keeping the customs of the law and uh, circumcision. This Jerusalem council ultimately decided that Gentiles didn't need to follow the customs, but they should be willing to make concessions to their Jewish brothers and sisters for the purpose of unity. 
the chapter also describes the dispute between Paul and Barnabas over whether to bring John Mark on their journey, which resulted in the two going their separate ways. So let's start reading and commenting. So again, just by way of reminder, we're about 20 years after the day of Pentecost, and of course, we're in and around the 50 AD mark here in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. So we'll go, we'll read verses 1 to 4, and then we'll make some comments. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that is, the brothers that came down from Judea, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So you'll remember Paul and Barnabas were pastoring in the church at Antioch. They have already gone on a missionary journey, on a church planting journey, and now they're back. And um, you learned last week that they came back to a lot of persecution. There was um, Jewish people that had stirred up dissension in those Gentile cities, and Paul ended up even being stoned, possibly to death, or at least the people that were stoning him thought they killed him. And uh, Paul faces all this persecution. He faces this dissension within the church between the Jewish converts to Christianity and the Gentile converts. The, the Jewish converts are saying, okay, I'm glad you believe in Jesus, but what about our three to 5,000 years of history with Moses? Are we just going to throw that out now? And they didn't want to, and they wanted the Gentile Christians to observe their customs and uh, to practice the physical sign of circumcision. And so Paul uh, and Barnabas pastoring this church in Antioch where there's persecution from without and dissension from within, sends Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to confer with the church there on this disturbing matter. Remember, the church was born in Jerusalem. It's the epicenter of the church. And so the apostles and many disciples and uh, significant people were living there, dwelling there, practicing Christianity there. And so the Gentiles from Antioch sent their pastors, Paul and Barnabas, to Jerusalem to settle this dispute. Are we keeping the law or are we keeping the customs? Are we doing circumcision or not? Now, on the way to this meeting, uh, they stop in Phoenicia and Samaria and they report to the churches there. <clears throat> 
concerning the conversion of the Gentiles, and a lot of people are excited about it. Remember, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, preach the gospel, uh, first in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they're on their way from the ends of the earth back to Jerusalem, and along the way they're telling all the Christians they meet how God is saving Gentiles. And of course, that's exciting news. The, the gospel is spreading and the church is growing. Uh, let's read now verse 5 to 6. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Isn't that interesting? There's all this excitement, all this enthusiasm about people getting saved, and right away the religious spirit shows up. These these, uh, believers, so this is who they are. They're believers, but they belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So remember, we're we're only 20 years removed from the day of Pentecost, so old habits die hard. These people built a life for themselves in this party of the Pharisees and living a certain way, and it's hard to just give that up. Even though they believed in this Jesus, they still uh, uh, identified with a lot of the, the traditions of Judaism and, and the practices of the Pharisees, and they immediately rose up and said, it is necessary, it must happen that these Gentile converts be circumcised and that they keep the law of Moses. Now, there was precedent for this in the Old Testament. Not every person who was Jewish by birth and by blood, um, or it wasn't just Jewish people by birth and by blood who believed in the God of Israel. There was such a thing as people converting to Judaism. And when they converted to Judaism, they had to be circumcised and they had to keep the law of Moses. And they had to be baptized uh, as a a symbol of forsaking their old religion and their old gods and uh, worshiping the God of Israel. And so that's what they were likely wanting these Gentile converts to Christianity to do, something of that nature, to be circumcised, to keep the law, and add Jesus to it. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is, called, this is known as the Jerusalem Council. It's the first major council of the church where they had to decide doctrine. A sect of Pharisees who are believers insist that Gentiles need to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses. What's interesting here, though, is that they did not really promote uh, keeping the sacrificial section of the Mosaic system, um, but they were very much wanting them to keep the ceremonial section of the Mosaic system, the customs, the feasts, the practices, the holy days, and of course the physical sign of circumcision. They wanted 
the Jewish, or sorry, the Gentile believers to keep the ceremonial section of the law. They, they believed, obviously, that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial section, but they didn't want to do away with the ceremonial section of the Mosaic law. So let's continue now from verse 7 to 11. And after there had been much debate at this Jerusalem council, Peter stood up and said to them, so re-enter Peter. We haven't heard much about Peter for a while, but here he comes again. He's, he's back into the mix, and as per usual, he's standing up in the middle of them, and he has something to say. And what does he say? He says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. You see, the Holy Spirit is the great equalizer. Um, The Gentiles didn't have Moses. They didn't have circumcision. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the priesthood, but now under this new covenant, we all come to Christ, are washed in his blood, and given the Holy Spirit. It's the great equalizer between Jew and Gentile, and that's what Peter is is saying here in verse 9. He said, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed our hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Peter is the first to speak up on this issue. He recounts his experience in the home of Cornelius, something we studied a few weeks back. When he saw that sheet lowered from the heavens and all kinds of animals, and the Lord said, kill and eat, and he had that argument with with the Lord. That's the situation he's recounting here. He recounts the experience he had. Um, And than the experience he had following that when he went to Cornelius' house and preached the gospel to the Gentiles there and they believed and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had the same experience that the Jewish Christians uh, had or the Jewish believers had on the day of Pentecost. And this is something for us to uh, always remember. Gentiles don't have any connection with the law. Gentiles were never invited to the Old Covenant. They were able to participate in it, as I just mentioned earlier. They could convert to it. Uh, Think of, for example, um, like the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about a few chapters ago. He's from Ethiopia, hundreds, thousands of miles away. He has a scroll of the prophet Isaiah that he's reading from. Judaism and and the God of Israel was respected in Ethiopia. And, of course, there's a connection there through King Solomon. So there was sympathy towards Judaism and sympathy towards the God of Israel all over the world, and many people converted to it. 
But the Gentiles were never included in the covenant. They were never included in the covenant. They were always outsiders. Even though they may have converted to worship the God of Israel, unless you were a national Jew by birth and by blood, you were not invited to this covenant. And that's still true today. Gentiles are not included in that. And so for us to go back through the Old Testament and cherry pick things we like out of the Old Covenant or out of the Old Testament law would be for us to invite ourselves uh, to a party where we're not invited. Peter makes it abundantly clear that Israel could never keep the law, so why are we expecting Gentiles to keep it? I love that. Very real, very honest here. Why are we putting God to the test, putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples of Christ that neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to bear? What does verse 12 tell us? And all the assembly fell silent. There's not really much to say when, when somebody tells you that you don't keep your own rules or that you're a hypocrite. The whole assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Barnabas and Paul are always ready to give an account for the hope that lies within them. They're always ready to report on what God has done among the Gentiles apart from the law. Remember, they were never invited to it. They don't know anything about it, most of them. I mean, they know, they know that it exists, I'm sure, but they don't practice it. But God is doing incredible things among them apart from it. Now, their messages aren't recorded here. We don't know what they said. We can assume that they said what they've said in other places in the past few chapters. That they gave a full report of the works and wonders of God done through them among the Gentiles. Picking up at verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. And James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we're talking about James the just, James the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James, after they had finished, Paul and Barnabas had finished, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. So James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, James the Just, who I mentioned on Easter Sunday morning, who was not a believer in his brother when he was ministering in his early 30s. James thought his brother Jesus was out of his mind. 
But after his death and resurrection, James became, James became a disciple of his brother Jesus, and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the same guy that was um, told to renounce Jesus, and he refused, so he was thrown from the highest point of the wall around the temple. And when he didn't die on impact, he was stoned to death. And as he was being stoned to death, he, um, influenced by his brother, prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This James is a very significant person, a very prominent person. And um, he gets up here now to add to the decision that they're about to make at this Jerusalem council. And he, he refers to uh, the words of the prophet here. He talks about how the church fits um, into the program of the prophets, although the church is not directly mentioned. But he quotes, uh, which prophet here? I wonder, let's look at my cross-references. Verse 16 cited from Amos 9, 11, and 12, also Jeremiah 12, 15. So James is quoting the prophet Amos and the prophet Jeremiah here when he says, as it is written, after this I will return. God is taking out, the gent- out from the Gentiles a people for his name. He was doing it then, and he's still doing it today. Uh, the program of the prophets will follow. What do I mean by program? I mean uh, what they prophesied concerning uh, Israel. There is a, a school of thought that God has put his plans for Israel on pause while the age of grace and the church age unfolds. And that in the seven-year tribulation, God will unpause what he was doing with national Israel, and he will fulfill any unfulfilled prophecies or any, anything that needs to be done at that time so that both covenants can be completely fulfilled. Uh, I, I tend to agree with that. You read through the book of Revelation, you'll find lots of uh, references to national Israel I'm thinking just off the top of my head here, the 144,000 witnesses come from the nation of Israel. They bear testimony to Jesus. When uh, they see him coming on clouds, when they see him riding that, uh, I guess they won't see that that before, when they see him coming on clouds um, at the voice of the archangel and the trumpet sound of God and the dead in Christ rise first and those who are alive and remain caught up. When they see that, they'll automatically clue in. Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And they'll, be, they'll believe and they'll witness to that during the tribulation. Uh, and so that's what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about the program of the prophets, that uh, there is some Old Testament prophecy concerning Israel yet to be fulfilled but it will not be left unfulfilled just because we now have the church, the true Israel of God. And what I mean by that is the true Israel that he predestined from the beginning. 
which was a nation, or sorry, a family consisting of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's what God always predestined. Not just one nation, but every nation. All right, let's continue on. Verse 16. Oh yeah, we did a big we did a big block. Now we're going back verse by verse. Look at verse 16 here in the notes. After this means after the church is taken out of the world. I will return. This is the second coming of Christ described in Revelation 19. He will build again the ruins of the house of David that have fallen down today. That refers to a rebuilding of the temple. God is going to fulfill all of his promises. Everything that he has Spoken, he will do. He'll not leave anything undone. And so, as we'll continue to read, we'll discover that um, they make they make a decision uh, that is good for them and for the Gentiles. They're they're learning how to be in unity with people that they were always to come out from and be separate from. And that's what's amazing about the cross and about the grace of God and the blood of Jesus that washes all our sin and the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. It's a great equalizer. And so these Jewish Christians, they're, they're learning that God has not overlooked them. He's not left them behind. And now they're learning how or needing to learn how to live in unity with people that for thousands of years they were asked, commanded, told to have nothing to do with. I mean, just go, go back in your mind to um, the prophecy of Nahum, which we've been looking at on Sunday nights. I mean, God tells them, uh, tells Israel in the north and Judah in the south, like, have nothing to do with Assyria. Have nothing to do with Nineveh and the surrounding nations and their idols and their pagan worship. And, and now the gospel is going from Jerusalem to all these places and the Gentiles are being saved, and it's causing great rejoicing for some, but others are going, maybe like Jonah, going, God, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you saving these wicked people, these people that have neglected you and hated you and not worshipped you like we have? Just a little bit of an aside there. I was just, I was just curious about observing or reading through Revelation 19 and just getting a little bit of context there as to what James is referring to. Verse 17, when Christ returns, there will be a way for the remainder of men to seek after the Lord. Then all the Gentiles will be in the kingdom on that day. Um, And then we see that there is a contrast between out of them and all the nations. So verse 14, uh, James says, where are we here? Yeah, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, to take from them a people for his name, and uh, that God desires that all nations be saved, not just Israel. Okay, verse 19 to 29. Therefore, my judgment, this is James speaking, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So we talked about this before too. Um, the Jewish Christians were meeting in the synagogue. They were practicing their faith in the synagogue, which is you know, technically a, a, a place of Jewish or a Jewish place of worship. But they were gathering there and they were, they were reading from the Old Testament. They were reading from the Torah. And so they thought, okay, if this is going on, if this is how Christianity is being practiced by Jewish converts, then we should make some concessions so that we can have unity. Because that's what was going on. There was this, this, this seed of discord that had been sown and there was a wall of separation that was rising again between Jew and Gentile. And so in order for that wall of separation to be torn down, or so that that seed of discord wouldn't grow, uh, James thought it was appropriate that we not burden the Gentiles, but that, that they should do a few things that will help maintain unity. Uh, first of all, eating things that have been polluted by idols. So anything that's been offered to an idol, sacrificed to an idol, uh, they should abstain from those things. Of course, abstain from sexual immorality and uh, that they should avoid things that have been killed a certain way. So a little bit of dietary restriction here. And of course, um, that they should abstain from and avoid any type of sexual immorality. And the reason for this, he says, I believe, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, I, I think he's saying these things are, are for their benefit, that they abstain from, from these things. In order, I, I think in order to buy something that was polluted by an idol, offered to an idol, they would have had to find themselves in a place where idol worship was taking place and like intermingling with, with pagans, maybe people from their old way of life that uh, could be difficult for them. And so James is saying, okay, stay away from those places. Of course, avoid sexual immorality, abstain from all forms of sexual immorality, and um, follow some of the, the dietary customs that we have for the sake of unity. Uh, the decision is that the Gentiles not be required to meet any of the demands of the Mosaic system, but that they exercise courtesy to those who do, especially in the area of food offered to idols and sexual immorality. And so here we see the first, here we see the precedent being set for what we'll read in some of Paul's letters when he talks about preferring one another in love preferring the weaker brother, uh, not causing uh, others to stumble with our own actions. Um, this is where that precedent is set. Paul's not just making that up on the fly. This council of Jerusalem or this Jerusalem council with these people, these believers from Jerusalem and all over the world, Christians from all over the world came together and made this decision. And so... Uh, I think that's important for us still today in maintaining unity. 
there's things that we're going to agree on. There's things that we're not going to agree on. We're going to have different theology. We're going to have different practices. But we need to have courtesy for one another. We need to love one another, respect one another, our differences and, uh, and things of that nature. Because I believe that is, of course, the way of Christ. Now, let's finish off the chapter. And if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Uh, let's go verse uh, 22. Let's do that whole paragraph there, 22 to 35. So then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders uh, with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. These were leading men among the brothers, and they sent them with the following letter. So just by way of recap, because I've done a lot of talking, Back at the beginning of the chapter, remember, the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to deal with this question. Now the church in Jerusalem is going to send some people, particularly Barsabbas and Silas, with this letter from James and others explaining to them what they think is appropriate for them to do, what seemed good to them. Verse Uh, 23, they sent them with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and uh, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction to do so, it seemed good to us, having come in one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, um, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Uh, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement and Judas, also known as Barsabbas, and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encountered and strengthened the brothers with many words. Or sorry, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace, the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So you'll remember Paul and Barnabas are pastors of the church here in Antioch. And after they brought in some um, special speakers for a little while, Judas and Silas, who had the gift of prophecy, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So here again, we see early use of the spiritual gifts. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecy is for the strengthening of the body, 
when he says that it's for the building up of the church, it's because that's what it was doing back in the book of Acts. Judas and Silas, who had this gift, they encouraged the body. They strengthened the church. They strengthened them with their words, with their speaking gift. And after they were strengthened and encouraged, the church sent them off. And then they went back to uh, listening to their own preacher and teacher, uh, Barnabas and Paul. It's important that we do that. It's important that we have people uh, visit our church and speak to us and, and use their gifts, particularly in the area of evangelism or, or prophecy and things of that nature, that we could all be strengthened and encouraged. But it's also important, of course, to, to have regular preaching and teaching from the Word by your pastor. And so I'm encouraged by your attendance still on this beautiful spring evening to come out to prayer meeting and to church or to Bible study. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So just again, by way of reminder, Paul and Barnabas, pastors in Antioch, they had the gift of preaching and teaching. Barnabas goes down to Antioch to join them together in steadfast purpose. He's bringing his gift of leadership to them, setting them under one mission and vision. Paul comes along with his ability to preach and teach. But then God empowers them with another gift, the gift of missionary evangelism. And they leave their church and they go plant churches and they come back. And now Paul has the itch to do it again. The Spirit is setting him apart and, and enabling him uh, and giving him this gift for missionary evangelism. And so Paul says to Barnabas, let's go visit those churches we planted. Let's visit the people, see how they're doing. Uh, this is not just the gift of missionary evangelism, but also the gift of apostleship, of shepherding care for not just one congregation, but for many congregations, which, of course, is the ultimate expression of that gift of apostleship, the care over many congregations and pastors and elders. And, and we see that Paul was that as his ministry went on. When you read the pastoral epistles of uh, Timothy and Titus, you see how Paul left Titus in Crete to establish elders in the churches there. And Paul is overseeing those elders or pastors of those churches using his apostolic gift in ministry. Uh, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. That's a throwback, Bob, to John Mark that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. And this is where we do learn that, of course, John Mark and Barnabas were uh, nephew and uncle. Yeah, that's what it was. So Barnabas wants to take his nephew, John Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take him with them. Why? Because a few chapters earlier, when we read about their first missionary journey, John Mark turned back, and he had not gone with them to do the work. 
We're not quite sure exactly why he turned back, but he turned back. And I don't want to say Paul held a grudge, but he certainly remembered. He remembered that John Mark put his hand to the plow and looked back. And so when it was time for a second missionary journey, he wasn't so interested in taking John Mark with him. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement, also known as intense fellowship. You ever had intense fellowship with your wife? I have. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Wow. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, and they departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Uh, And he went through Syria and through uh, Cilicia, and he strengthened the churches. So in our notes it says, After the council of Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch. They make preparations for a second journey, but they have a sharp dispute. They have a disagreement, and they part company. It's all right to have a disagreement. Sometimes after you have a disagreement, you got to go somewhere and cool off. And that's what these guys are doing. One sails off to Cyprus, and the other's going in the exact opposite direction to Syria and Cilicia. But even though they had sharp disagreement, what is it they were able to do? Strengthen the churches. God uses everyday, ordinary people with weaknesses to minister to people because everyone is everyday, ordinary people with weaknesses. James said that we all stumble in many ways. We all struggle. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. That's why we have the Holy Spirit in us who enables us for ministry. So many times we disqualify ourselves from ministry because of our own limitations, our own weakness, but it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to exceed the limitations of our humanness and to do what we could not do on our own. We simply need to be willing vessels, the conscious choice to say, yes, Lord, Not my will, but yours be done. So next time when we pick up, we're going to uh, be introduced to Timothy, who's going to become a young pastor, and Paul's going to write him a letter. We can read that book together sometime. It's a powerful uh, epistle known as one of the pastoral epistles, one of the three pastoral epistles in the New Testament. And then we're going to hear about the Macedonian call, which is incredible. And then also a famous story, Paul and Silas in prison. We get get another jailbreak story next week.